House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is back from his karate challenge. <laughs> the challenge? Well, yeah. it's, it's always a challenge, isn't it? It's always a challenge. <laughs> At your age, it must be a challenge going to anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot different now than than back when I was like 18, yeah. The recovery time must take longer. Yes. Oh, yeah, that you know, especially after doing a weekend seminar or something like that. It's, yeah, no good for, to anyone for a few days after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I, I would imagine, because I notice things just that aren't as strenuous as what you do, and I would think that, um, and it takes me longer to recover than it would, you know, 30 years ago. So that's yeah. 20 years ago, 10 years ago. <laughs> Last and I can week. still... Yeah, I can still, you know, pull a muscle or something, you know, just rolling the wrong way in bed. You know, <laughs> just, you know, I'm doing all the strenuous stuff and then. Yeah, yeah. You know, well. Buy your shoes wrong and. Yeah, geriatrics. Yeah. You'll, be, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be in that, that uh, you know, ward pretty soon, right? Mm. You know. Ah. Oh, and, and another death yesterday. See that? Which one? Oh, Crosby. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, 81. You know, I oh. thought he was older. And, you know, for some <laughs> reason, I thought he was older than 81. I don't know why. Yeah. But that is quite a, quite an age. But he did yeah. He did pretty good, 81. Yeah. Rocker well, lifestyle. Bad. Yeah, rocker yeah. lifestyle with all that, you know. Yeah, for being a rocker, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't believe And what's her? She's um, 85, you know, that. Uh, oh. Jane Fonda. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I know. And she's doing that workout video now. Oh, is she? We're talking about all those reboot, reboots from the 80s, like Night Night Court and all that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Well, now she's doing the reboot. Remember she did those videos in the 80s? Yes. You know, yeah. with uh, all the pastel colors. and Well, she's, <laughs> she's redoing it at 85. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's be, uh, you know, that's what I'm going to get you for your birthday. Perfect. I'm going to put on some leg warmers and uh, yeah, you can be like flash dance 80 style yeah. all over again and I can see yeah. it and you could be working out at home and your wife will come home and then she'll turn around and say, I'm going back to work. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she does that anyway. So. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a double shift tonight. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. See you in those flash dance tights. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's get on with this. Now, so we've got uh, an author today, and um, I guess a Canadian author. I didn't know this, but and her new book's called The Extra, and it's a Monument Studios mystery, and that's the Monument Studios mystery book one. And that's all the name is. It's just a short name. <laughs> <laughs> and the author's our guest, Mel Anastasia. Thank you for being here. Hi. It's lovely to be here, Alan, and hi, Dave. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I'm so sorry to hear about Crosby. I love the portrait of him that Bob Dylan did in Chronicles. It was just amazing, greater-than-life figure. Yeah, that's what I like to write about, uh, ordinary people with greater-than-life yeah. figures. It's fun. Yeah. Well, you haven't written about me yet. 
I'll have to start. <laughs> and Dave, you'll be doing karate in any book I write with you. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can watch his demos live on uh, all the different social media. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's good yeah. to have these extra skills. Uh, do you write, Dave? I do, too. Yes. Multi-talented, right? <laughs> no kidding. Do you find that you use your karate in your writing? I do. Oh, fantastic. I do. I always put. I always have a character who has to fight. Awesome. Makes a difference. <laughs> my, yeah. my editor is uh, an expert in mounted combat. So anytime there's a horse in anything, I send it straight to her. Ah, Got that's that, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like experience when you're when you're trying to write something or you you write characters. When you have a person that does that or is involved in that, it makes a a, a world of difference. I think than trying to do it from scratch mm-hmm. and getting it right because you know there's going to be a karate expert or a mounted combat fighter out there. Yeah, well, it's true. You know, and that's what you know. You kind of got to be careful. You, you can mention guns, and if you don't know enough about them. You could mention the wrong gun or make or something about it, and of course, there's going to be that person <laughs> out there, especially in the U.S. that that knows every detail about the gun, and they're going to write about it about how wrong you were. Yeah, you know, so it's important. That's you know, right. You don't thing. want to make those guys angry. No, because they'll show you how the gun works, <laughs> <laughs> and and it might not be good. So, yeah, mystery yeah. writers, we always think that way, don't we? Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, just a few days. So, what what is this story all about here? Like, what what kind of uh, book is the extra? And it looks like you're doing a series with this. So, what what's kind of the um, foundation or the basic premise of this story? Well, it, you know, you're right, Alan. It's uh, it's a series. I love to write series because you've got to develop those characters. And Frankie Ray is a Good one for me because she's a substitute school teacher in Vancouver in 1934 with a uh, very beautiful best friend. And the two of them go to a uh, go to an audition for a film that turns out to be extremely dodgy, end up with a gun and heading south of Hollywood to make their names as stars. But instead of that, they end up with a dead body on their couch. And the mystery goes from there all mixed up with Hollywood in the 30s and the gritty times and the ambition and troubles there, but fun as well. What, what, what do you think draws you to that time period and Hollywood itself? Like what, what puts you there to where you want to write a series? Well, you know, Alan, like think back to when you're a teenager and you're doing something that everybody says it's a true waste of time. <laughs> For me, it was looking at uh, old movies and reading everything that there was to have about old movies and what possible use could that be. And then all of a sudden I thought, I now have all the equipment I need to run off to 1934 Hollywood and become a movie star, or try to. And so that's what my character wanted to do. And since nobody has yet invented time travel, I'd have to do it through my writing and take you with me. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, but you never know. Maybe someone has, and we just didn't know it. We don't realize that we keep on reliving things. That's right. You have Absolutely. no idea. You've written this uh, book several times, and you didn't know it. Yeah. And I was really lucky with it because I had all this. In fact, I had too much information about the movies because uh, you don't want to put 
too much, uh, too many details in your book, right? It just ends up reading like uh, a movie history. And uh, so I, uh, I really enjoyed using all that in what I was doing and, uh, and then developing new, new heroes that are sort of icons of the time or like icons of the time, like the kinds of crimes that went on at the time and uh, the tricks and the ways of fame and notoriety and uh, ambition on the sets down there in 1934. Oh, and you're not old enough to have lived it, so you must do a lot of research. What do you go back to the old papers and, and sort of see how people, what kind of crimes they committed? <laughs> oh, I've got lots of books on those. And I used to read every, you know what was really useful was Life magazine. I read every Life magazine when I was in university from when it started in about 36 up to about 1950. And that really helped because you get a feel for what worried people, you know, and, uh, you know, sweaty armpits, yeah. uh, things like that. And uh, and also, I was very lucky because my mother just remembers 1934 as a tiny child and uh in the late 30s so she knew what was uh what i what was being eaten back then like the the newtown apples and the eclair cookies and i had a 102 year old uh friend who um who was born the same year as frankie ray and lived in the house i used her house as the house in vancouver that frankie ray grew up in and she was able to tell me so much about what was happening for a person of that age in that time. Is that how you also uh, get your dialogue, or, or do you take it from the historical record? Uh, do you use movies uh, to, to help with that, or is it all imagination? Well, 1934, it's, it's more or less trying to write like the screenwriters wrote in 1934. So uh, it happened one night, for example, with the, uh, with the snappy dialogue and, and the... Uh, the newspaper, the newspaper writer in her pantsuit, which was just barely acceptable then. Catherine Hepburn had just started doing it, and things like that that you find the influence of the of the writers of the time, who were writing gossip magazines and the kind of ways that they went at you emotionally. So all those kinds of things were really helpful for writing the way people spoke as much as I could in 1934. Yeah, it's an interesting time, and just in you know finding out about things and what people did and what they what they like to eat and what their trends <laughs> were and stuff. Um, so, with this story, um, because you're doing a series, is there is there some sort of a an ending, or do you do you know how many books you want to do in this series and where you want to take um, this this whole series and your characters? Well, I always think I'm going to write a trilogy and then it ends up being more than that. So because I love the characters and hopefully Frankie's going to have a very slow climb because she really has not much talent and she doesn't have the looks to make it. But what she has is a can-do attitude. It was a big deal and still is. And uh, so I'd like to take her as far as I can with all the, with all the mysteries uh, the next one's going to center on a hotel that is full of screenwriters and eccentric actors. 
that is also on Sunset Boulevard. How are you developing your character here, Frankie? How are you? You're kind of starting in one place, and you're going to put her through things, I guess, with each book throughout the series. Um, is there an intention? Do you kind of want to turn her into something? Do you know what to develop her to? Do you have a direction you're going in? I guess is probably what I should say. Frankie thought she was going to get married and live in Vancouver forever. And then all of a sudden, everything happened at once, and she had to head south to Hollywood and even wanted to head south to Hollywood by that point. So her her uh, development within Hollywood uh, in a bigger city with bigger ambitions for herself and for the people around her, because that for Frankie is the deal. In Vancouver, it was her neighborhood. She was going to be one of the Dunbar wives. And uh, when she gets down to Hollywood, it's the group of young wannabe extras and uh, that all live in a, in a setting. It's right next to the Garden of Alla Villas called Paradise uh, Villas, Paradise, Paradise Gardens. And they all are trying to help one another to get ahead and make a buck and be an extra and make it on the screen and get some credit. And meanwhile, all the forces further up the line are pressing further up still or further down as everyone's ambitions collide and some step too far forward. And Frankie in her role as protector as well as aspiring actor uh, has to get involved. I like to write about fish out of water and Frankie certainly is a fish out of water sleuth. Yeah, and it would be coming from, because Vancouver back in the 30s would have been a really small town as compared to, to, as compared to Hollywood. There were still marshes all the way, all around the Dunbar area. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was smaller than it. But it was also a very difficult time, of course, from the, uh, with the depression that's going on. And that's another, another pressure that's happening all around people's attitudes at the time. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah depresses me <laughs> well but the struggles and the and the helping one yeah. another really you get that effect i read betty mcdonald's book um anybody can do anything said in seattle at that time and just how everybody was trying to get jobs and everybody's trying to help one another and you do you do anything and that that is like frankie she will do anything to help and uh if it means waiting on tables or if it means finding a killer, she's ready to, to do it. Did she know karate? <laughs> I wish she knew karate. <laughs> you know, and that's, but you see, it's funny, but I, I wonder, could a woman actually learn karate in something like Vancouver at that time? Do you know? Hmm. I wonder thinking. if they would allow her to, to to even enter a class of men that were taking some sort of, martial arts class i wonder if 1930 a woman could do that i'll have to ask my mom yeah because you know what i mean because the way people thought back yeah. then was way different because yeah. even in the 60s it would have been kind of unusual so i could imagine the totally 30s it, just, yeah. it would be totally unheard of i yeah. would think yeah you know so there you go she has to do it in the underground he would i was just i would i think you're right on there would have to be somebody from uh one of the countries that in one of the Asian countries that did it, living there, that would become her master. But I'm no expert, so... No, but that's, but that's the interesting things about going back in time like that. Things yeah. you take for granted now, things we just do without thinking. 
um, back then, you know, I mean, it's almost a hundred years ago, but you wouldn't back then it wouldn't even be considered. It would be kind of some, something that you would go, no, you wouldn't even think that way. Or what's a woman doing that for? Cause even when I watch the old game shows from the fifties and sixties, they'll even do that, make jokes of, of a, a woman that's decided to be a wrestler or something like this, or a sports reporter, and they all make fun of her. You know, it's almost like, oh, what would a woman do that for? And it's a big deal. Yeah. So I could imagine 1930. But Yeah, oh, for sure. And it's an interesting time because so much of the modern world is still there. Uh, it's already there in 1934. Like, if you go back to 1834, you know there's not going to be a hamburger. But hamburgers in 1934, when was the first hamburger? Hamburger. It turns out, according to my research, it was 1925 White Castle, first official hamburger. But uh, I tell you what, 1934, it's got so many opportunities to go down rabbit holes and get absolutely nothing written any particular day. Yeah, yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's probably the hardest part of the, the job, in a sense. But it's something that you, you need to do. Otherwise, it, uh, it'll be missing parts. You know, you, you miss parts if you don't do that. Yes, and it's an awful lot of fun too. Oh yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to trace it down. Being a mystery writer, finding the mystery of did they have thermoses in 1934? Oh, exactly. Yeah, you know, did, <laughs> did they have a bathroom? <laughs> did they have a phone? <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, they know. wouldn't in their house, no. But yeah. they would have a central phone that everybody used. You're right. Yeah. Isn't that? It's crazy. Go yeah. down the road and and call, um, but. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Um, so your character, um, Frankie, how do you experience Frankie? Or is Frankie you? Do you, do you have kind of a, a lot of yourself in that character? Uh, I think we pretty much put all ourselves in all our characters, different aspects, even the murderer. Yeah, right. absolutely. But Frankie, you got, as you say, you've got to have something that you enjoy being in the skin of. And a 22 year old substitute teacher who, makes her break and then tries to get a break in show business. That's a lot of fun to live in. Yeah, well, it can be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a big challenge too, right? It's, it's something that uh, to achieve that. Um, so what do you, do you have kind of a, a theme then? Is there something you, you're trying to get people to, to think about when they read this book, not just entertainment? Oh, entertainment. You gotta love, I think you, I think you pretty much gotta love the movies. Just when you, when you get back into those, most people, uh, if they get a chance to see, for example, if it, it happened one night, they go, that is crazy. That is, uh, that is so much fun. Yeah. And, and now they, they cast it differently back then too, didn't they? In the thirties, it would have been a different type of, uh, casting for hollywood wouldn't it it would be and the fascinating stuff you have to you have to read for example david niffin did a lot of extra work so i was able to, and he talked a lot about what that was like being on the set uh, getting your name on and how the days went and how a lot of the extras would sneak off and go to the beach and then come back and get their dollar and things like that and and the ones hoping to make their break and then getting chosen out of the group to be uh, a single figure on camera and uh, and survive and get noticed and and uh, how much of yourself are you going to sell? Very, very fun to think about how to get ahead. And then the hand in the face of ambition colliding with violence and 
Frankie and her friend Connie getting caught in the middle. What made you so interested in the movies of that era? Did, did you want to um, act? Uh, how, how did that come about? Uh, it, I might have wanted to be a movie star when I was 13. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but, you know, I, even then, I think, I, I mean, my favorite actor back then was Leslie Howard and Olivia, and my favorite actress was Olivia de Havilland, both from the 30s, and uh, Leslie Howard was gone by 42. And... Yeah, I guess you know when I say that, it probably gone with the wind. Got me into it as a as a young mm. person, and and then I just uh, went down rabbit holes, practicing for adult writing life. <laughs> <laughs> Everything interested me. Sounds like Dave, actually. You know? <laughs> rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's So now, when you create. Your your characters. Do you have a hard time writing um, the killer or the evil people or the people that cause problems in the story? Do you, do does that give you a challenge to get into their mind? I used to in the very beginning, and then somebody handed me a book on writing by Robert Ludlum, who I happened to be reading at the time, and he said in it that your your bad guy or gal had to be. Uh, your evil character antagonist had to be as, uh, have as much belief in his own goodness or her own goodness as, uh, the hero did or the heroine. So the antagonist had to believe in himself or herself. And, uh, and once that was set, I could see how allowing oneself to behave in a certain way because of these reasons that the antagonist feels is a good reason, then I can build a character that, uh, first of all, is fun to write because I can see the fallacies. So it's fun to write that, that antagonist. And second of all, it's easier to hide the antagonist when they don't believe they're evil. Yeah, I guess, I guess to, quite often the uh, evil characters, uh, they believe they're right. Mm-hmm. you know, in what they're doing, even though it's bad, because they really believe in something and they, they sort of follow through it uh, with with all of their heart because they think what they're doing is something right. And that makes them scarier. When, when you're writing those villains um, or or your heroic characters, are you the type of writer that can hear the character in your mind? Um, do you have an inner monologue? Is, is that how um, – and, and can you hear the prose? Or is there some other way? that you uh that you create your your fiction i think through writing so i although i'll cogitate on a particular turning point a lot when i'm writing that's when my thoughts come so i do a lot of self-correcting and i i know how i want the scene to go and then as you say because you're playing every character yourself starring as every character in your own book movie uh, you can write the dialogue as you're going to get from here to here and move the uh, move the plot along nicely with everybody having their own agendas and your sub sub uh, plots are pushing the uh, main character into making difficult and sometimes unfortunate choices. Yeah, you feel it coming because it's it's a it's a balance. Don't you find uh, it's a balance between knowing what you're going to write and being happily surprised at the uh, way it came out. 
because so, you've got to be surprised too or you get bored with writing i think yeah well i mean or, or you can always dress up like your characters and, and <laughs> act out the role i mean that's what i do i mean i'm i get all into it, you know, it. and the time flies <laughs> for sure <laughs> i have one friend who writes i have one friend who writes an entire well she's very good too she writes her entire book in in uh dialogue before she writes anything else i couldn't do it but uh I need the breaks. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a, the trick is finding what works for you as you get it through, right, when you work out these things mm-hmm. and stuff. So do you ever go back to older work that you've done and, and want to correct it or change it? Well, I do correct it and change it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an endless that's an endless battle, but because as you always progress, you can always go back and, and go, oh, I should have done this. Like, that'll be an endless job. Well, yeah, it's kind of feeling endless because I had a, a bunch of books before I started publishing. I had some books back there that I was really glad nobody picked up because once it's out, it's out forever, right? So, yeah. so I took the book and I said, I'm sorry, I love these characters and I know what to do, how to fix the story now. So it's worth taking three months and, and working through it and uh, saving what's, uh, what kept me writing all those years ago and uh, the characters that lived back then and bringing that forward what made you decide to write and and to, to publish to let people see what you were writing was there some 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 thing that happened to you or something that kind of pushed you into doing that to actually publishing yeah i'm a founding editor with pulp literature and uh, what had happened was i'd had some a success i was a novelist who was not getting published and as I say, good thing too, because there was, there were some things lacking from my work that I so know how to do now that I didn't know how to do then that were very important. And, but I had a, I had an, I had an agent and I had an editor and then things went sort of petered out and then kids and, you know, and, uh, and then got into an excellent writing group and we were sitting there and we all liked one another's work. And it was 2013, and it was at a time when you could send things out, and all you got back was you were still sending paper, probably. No, no, I guess I was sending by email, not by then. Um, but uh, you would really get no response at all, just an automatic response. And we looked at one another, and you read about Hugh Howey and, and those guys doing self-publishing, and, and the three of us founding editors looked at one another and said, you know, we have what we need to self-publish, but if every if we're having this trouble, and we each said, and your book is so good, <laughs> we all were big admirers of each other's work, <laughs> and yeah. then other people must be having this, this trouble too. So we need to give people a place where they can submit. And we happen to know that it's very difficult to find genre, um, genre um, magazines at that time. So we started off the anthology magazine of genre called pop literature and late and uh, and started to publish through that and all of a sudden everything had to be um ready to be published that week and uh, the rest has been history so we've been we've been publishing other people and our own and uh and the anthology and it's really uh taken off quite nicely with uh, the opportunity to uh to publish people from Canada and from the States and the UK and Australia. We've got writers in Finland and Norway 
and Italy, I think. What kind of what kind of people are you publishing? Like, what kind of uh, books do you publish? In novels, we publish it in the genres. So we publish mystery and uh, historical and uh, speculative. So we published a slipstream novel. I I don't know if you know Matt Hughes. He's an amazing science fiction writer. So we published his book, uh, What What the Wind Brings, which is a slipstream historical set in South America. And he actually won the endeavor. It was the last endeavor he tied and uh, the first Canadian win with that book. We had, we just love that book. And uh, we published we published uh, Advent by Michael Kamakana. He's actually uh, Alice Monroe's nephew. And he's a coma survivor who is an incredible writer. And he wrote this short um, literary science fiction novel that we published. I was just, I was blown away. I, I live in England some of the time. And uh, I was on the, the tube going, oh, okay, here's another one. Holy smoke. <laughs> this is incredible. This is exactly what I, what I we keep, a, like I keep a row of books on my, in my office, books I wish I'd published. And, uh, I suppose I've got books I wish I'd written, but not really, not really. But books I wish I'd published. And, uh, some of them were, um, amazing literary science fiction like Station Eleven. And, uh, some were, uh, a couple were one of my favorite ones if it's done right, which is when they say, we did this, we did that, first person plural. There are very few books that works in, but this one did for part of it. When you need to be hidden or you need to be a part of a huge group. And that was was amazing. Yeah, so uh, it's been quite an adventure. We've got a uh, fantasy novel coming up from Brenda Carr and uh, Jen Landell's uh, trilogy of Corral and and Aria. And, and the third one is just out, which is Corral with beautiful high fantasy writing. Yeah, just stupendous. It's so exciting. I love doing the, uh, I do the structural editing for novels and for short stories. So because I was saying that uh, in my youth, in my youth, I uh, had trouble with structure was uh, really spoiling the party for me. And uh, so I did so much, uh, so much work. I can't even call it a rabbit hole. It was like, it was like a master's class in in uh, dissecting movies and reading everything on structure I could find and, and just um, outlining every book I read, every movie I saw to see how the structure worked. So that, for example, the extra uh, would work as a movie, really, if, or a series, that kind of thing, because I write as a movie is written, not in dialogue, but in structure. Yeah, so much fun. So you must be a terrible person to watch movies with. I try to shut up. I try to shut up. Because <laughs> you just, like, rip apart everything right from the but beginning. But only to admire, Alan. Well, it's true, but someone watching it's going to be like, oh, my God, stop it. <laughs> yes, but only in my head because I yeah. want people well, to like me. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've never tried that. Maybe I should. What's that? Wanting people to like me. <laughs> Everybody likes you, I can tell. <laughs> no, that's what's been holding me back. i got to start being nicer, I guess. <laughs> Something, something's going on there because uh, losing friends, you know. Well, what's your, what's, your own, what's your own structure in writing? So, like, are you the type of person that um, 
you schedule time and you can say, okay, you know, one to three today I can write and you can sit down and write and turn it on. Or is there, is there something that um, the atmosphere and the mood has to be right for you? I think if I had to wait for everything to be right, I'd never do anything. I pretty much write most uh, weekday mornings um, and I write in a group often, often it's only a group of two. And uh, we just write individually and then share what we've got after an hour. And uh, that keeps me making sure that something happens in that hour's worth of work, which is about a thousand words. So that uh, that's that's really a nice kick in the butt for making things uh, move along nicely as you go. And at and, and time of day, yeah. Well, how, how do you organize and, and keep track of uh, the story itself, the happenings, the characters, especially since you're doing um, series work? And, you know, how, how do you handle continuity over a long period of time? Yeah, that's that's really good. I expect uh, most people who do series work must keep a, a Bible like I do. So for my Stella Ryman and the Fairmount Manor mystery series, I have to remember which uh, which uh, resident lives in which which of the corridors and and where the dining halls located and uh, and the and the alarmed doors and so on. That's it's uh, I've got an eighty plus uh, amateur sleuth in a down at heels care home. You'd be cranky too, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was she's so much fun to write. Yeah, that's the hardest thing about writing series. You know, once you start writing, you. Uh, you really love, I love Stella so much. I just finished my third, uh, the third uh, book in the, was going to be a trilogy. And uh, it's now going to be carrying on because I can't let her go. And, uh, but so you go, well, I want to get Frankie to have her next adventure in Hollywood. But on the other hand, Stella's waiting for book four. And, uh, and then I've got a series of a Hartfordshire pub mysteries uh, that I wrote when uh, we're in England about a Canadian expat who is mysteries in time through a pub where he keeps going back and uh, becoming a better man as he solves every mystery. Yeah, and you think, oh, I haven't visited Spencer Stevens since 2017. I'd really like to write him. I wish there were three of me. Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Oh, it would help with housework, too. Yeah, that's something, you know, but, you know. So the outside world doesn't interfere in your writing? Well, I'd better. Otherwise, I'd be really tunnel vision, I think. Yeah, I, I love working from home. I used to do a five-hour commute so uh, when I was teaching. And uh, so writing from home feels like a really big luxury. And I do try to get out. And, uh, and my husband's very active, so he kind of... Uh, kicks my butt to get out too and I like that and uh yeah it's all it's all very good I've uh, got it my mom is next door the one who was around in 1934 and she uh she uh it's nice to spend time with her take her out for drives and things oh yeah the outside world does as you you know and, and what you were saying Dave about do you plan plan your time I think that when you've got so much going on which everybody does I think even in COVID, we had so much time going on, uh, things going on. Um, I just find for me, I have to know that I'm going to be writing from 10 to 12 every day and hopefully get a chunk to work on in the uh, in the afternoons as well, because, you know, those three uh, series are calling. Yeah, yeah. How do you know when your book's done? 
How do you know when you when you finish the story, you feel like it's finished? I guess I've always seen the ending from the beginning, so when I reach it, I know it's there. I love to think yeah. of that final scene. Again, I think it's it's movies. I've always loved them, whether I'm writing about movies or not. There's a, there's something of a movie in everything I do. Picturing the the opening scene and the ending scene and the and the darkest hour in the middle and the uplift and the rhythms of it lovely to write have, have you got this like big huge staircase and you come down holding one of those long <laughs> cigarette holders like you're ready for your close-up and is that how you enter the kitchen every day yeah i must start that i'm, I'm ready I, I must start that i'll put a candy i'll put a candy cigarette yeah. in yeah yeah that's right you don't need to have a real one you remember it's acting so you just you know, you walk down the stairs and, and, you know, and who dresses like that in the morning like that? I, I, that's quite a gown to be wearing in the, oh, in the morning, man. but, you know, it seems like a lot of work, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, hey, if you get, if you get joy out of it, why, why not? not? You know? Yeah. So what's next? Like, where are you going to go with this? Are you, um, you know, you said you, you look at things in a trilogy, but you know that you end up doing more. So there's going to be more in this series, of course. We don't know exactly how many yet, but um, what, do, where else do you see yourself going or developing? Well, the various the various mysteries and, and uh, murders that actually happened in Hollywood and the, the unfairness that went on are all so inspiring and the pressures... Uh, around the writers and the uh, and the actors and the directors and the producers who had all the power but were themselves pressured by outside sources. And in 1934, uh, there's big-time pressures on all of Hollywood to be extremely uh, godly and uh, well-behaved, which was not what they really had in mind. And, uh, yeah, there's just so many pressures. And I know that uh, F. F. Scott had... What was his last name? Oh, Bird. Scott Bird wrote a biography of one of the great uh, producers, Goldwyn. And what he did in there helped inform what King Samson does in uh, the first mystery. And then uh, some friends of mine had gone and stayed in the Chateau Marmont that's been there since 1925 and things happening right across the street, really, from the Garden of Allah where everything was happening. So there's so many settings, and I think that the setting of Hollywood and the settings within Hollywood really make for amazing uh, pressures for mysteries to happen with all these characters. So it's really handling the characters and not getting so many that uh, it gets uninteresting for the reader and uh, choosing your choosing your sparks to make the... Uh, fire go no did you did you get into the um the, the the racism and the things that were going on back then too yes absolutely and uh the racism uh not being able to act in well we've all seen it done the recent ones that have come out on tv there's so so much uh, good streaming stuff on on uh on the platforms of it and of course uh in the 20s, uh, there was a wonderfully huge gay community that was just trampled on by uh, the producers. Uh, and everybody ran off and got married and stopped uh, doing what they were doing, except uh, there were lots of parties in, in the hotels and things like that. So it was still going on, but all of a sudden everybody had to go underground, which was 
Oh, really sad. So, uh, so my character Frankie Ray has has landed up there, and and uh, he is questioning. But it's just such an underground thing that nobody's really talking about it. But this will come out more and more as we go along. The racism, and misogyny, uh, misogyny and racism are are big in the first book, and and then when we get to the one set in a hotel, that too will move on to. Uh, to more discussion of uh, how it, how it was for gay people in uh, in 1934. Yeah, because there, there became like a, a standard, didn't they have kind of a... Yeah, Will Hayes. He used to be the postmaster general, and he was brought in, and I'd always thought of him as a big, wicked guy. And, well, and uh, it turned out that he was actually there to try to stop the churches from having such a great, a huge effect on the movies and directing everything that was going to happen in them. So he was there to, to uh, sort of be a buffer between the outside pressures and Hollywood themselves. And, uh, and, but so he made up all these rules that were ridiculous, but that he felt was protecting Hollywood and allowing them to tell good stories without, uh, you know, the Mothers of America in 1934 coming down their necks and going, she cannot show disrespect to her mother, you know, things like that, where where they'd actually go and vet everything. So Will Hayes meant himself to be a, to be a buffer, but he always had a different buffer. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, well, if it wasn't him, there's someone else, right? I mean, you go right into Hedda Hopper, and I didn't realize what a hag she was oh my goodness i had if, no idea if you'd ever mm-hmm. if it ever came over you that you suddenly wanted to read a hollywood autobiography david nivens is absolutely hilarious and he and uh the two hedda hopper and well parsons uh the chapter on them is absolutely amazing and the forces that were put on with the drugs and the and the booze and the how do you rise from being an extra and and betrayals of by agents and of agents and things like that. It just, of course, it's going to happen. A whole bunch of very young people with suddenly uh, a lot to lose in a time yeah. of uh, great need and great excess. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, learning how to hop history, uh, just about, I had no idea. For some reason, I thought she would be a nice lady. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, holy cow, she was like, you know, gays or commies, and they, uh-huh. and she, she had some... I couldn't, and she was naming people and trying to get, holy cow, I didn't realize she was so, so vile. Mm. I, I really didn't realize she was so, I was just surprised. They, I, they were both vile, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, it's not one, it's the other, you know. if Someone someone always kind of takes that role, don't they? You yeah, know? and I think play, playing the, the two of them, uh, not against one another, just walking a tightrope between the two of them because you weren't allowed to talk to Luella if Hedda heard about it. She'd sort of talk you down, that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so many uh, tight uh, uh, wires to walk in Hollywood at the time, and I'm sure now, too. Oh, yeah. It's just I think it, it, it just kind of changes but as the world does. But, you know, you got to fit different things, you know. And I mean, look at... Um, yeah, it's crazy. Um, the whole thing. Um, Alex, Alec Baldwin's got got arrested. Hey, eh? oh, I'm just. Yeah. I'm sort of. Yeah. I'm sort of in shock, sitting there, kind of going, "Well, 
you know, um, wow, yeah. you know, I'm an actor doing a scene and the stunt person gives you a, a gun and you use it and it kills someone because there's a real bullet in it. I'm responsible? Yeah. I, I'm really confused. Yeah, and um, how much of it is Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Yeah, how much is it, yeah, of who you are as a person rather than... Well, because he did all those... uh, Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, I know. And, you know, but that's kind of, that's the hard thing. You know, I just, but I I just wonder where that's going. I don't, I'd really like to know what they consider responsibility on, on, on him when it had to go through three or four different people before it got to you. Yeah, because it seems so, like, so crazy. They gave him a gun, told him to, you know... Yeah. He didn't even fire it. So uh And and well and how many actors do that anyway? You're you're doing it and you you, you, you get given the gun by the stunt and you just you you shoot like you're supposed to and how, uh, you know, so yeah. I'm supposed to check the gun. I wouldn't have checked the gun. No, you just I don't know, the whole I thing will now. crazy. Yeah, well <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll make sure it's loaded. Well I just I remember they and they must have I, was it back in the eighties that actor on a time travel TV show who jokingly held a, a, a gun that was not a true gun? One of those yeah. ones that just goes bang to his head. Do you remember that? Yeah. And it killed him. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Well, it's just a bit, look at, and that, um, wasn't Brandon Lee was, was shot too. With right. Life in a movie. Oh, I don't remember stuff, how so. that happened, but it's shocking. Well, I, yeah, I've I've still, from outside looking in, I still do not understand how live ammo gets onto a set in Hollywood when nothing is supposed to be real. That's right. The whole thing doesn't seem. Well, it seems like you'd want to investigate that pretty carefully. Yeah, I just want to know why. Why is there? Why is there even live ammo on the set? Yeah. For any reason, because you're never you're never really shooting anybody in any of those things. So, uh, just the whole thing of how it gets in there it just confuses me. But, yeah. but I'm not in there full time, so maybe there's a reason they do that. I like to know why, but oh, it's curious anyway. The whole thing. Um, yeah. We need Dave on the set because he could be the karate man anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Take care of anybody that has a gun. He could kick it out of there well i mean you could yeah. snatch the bullets right isn't that what oh, that you, yeah you're so fast you could just grab it out of the air when they fire oh, of course right yeah wow yeah. I've, I've seen that in a movie. Yeah, of course <laughs> yeah Carradine, you know, isn't he wasn't you kung fu or something yeah yeah well he didn't do bullets though those were like uh, uh no he snatched the beans from his yeah. hand yeah before yeah well, that's true yeah. <laughs> wow so listen um Okay, Mel. So mm-hmm. now, do you, are you big on social media? Do you have a website? How do you like to interact with your fans or readers or people out there? Well, I'm on Twitter at Mel Anastasia. And uh, I've got a website, um, Mel Anastasia at WordPress.com. And, uh, of course, PulpLiterature.com. And all our books are available on, on Amazon and all the, all the platforms. For ebooks and uh, print books. Fantastic. Yeah, and if you've got stories, send them in. Yeah, we'll have all that up on the website too, so people can find it if they can't remember or they can't spell like me. <laughs> um, so, uh, listen, how was the pandemic for you over work? Like, did it did it interfere with your work, or did it 
kind of because with some writers and some artistic people, we found it shut them right down. They were unable to do anything, and others were just sort of went crazy and had a great old time. Yeah, I arrived home just uh, in BC because I live in the UK in Hertfordshire part of the time. And we'd been there for quite some time. I arrived home just before the uh, pandemic. But because of living there and because we have editors in Toronto and uh, so on, we were already used to meetings and actually disgorging, things like that. And uh, so we carried on as usual with our writing and our meetings. But we found that we uh, needed to go bigger on social media. So we have a YouTube, ch- we had a YouTube channel. We had meetings for writers so that people could attend from all around the world and people could do their readings from all around the world. And, uh, and that was fascinating to have the, the TV show out there and to be able to talk to people in, in Norway. Cause the uh, personal launch, the lunches in person no longer could happen in Vancouver. But it meant that those same people could still come and la- and launch their stories for the magazine and uh, and talk from wherever they could manage to stay up in the middle of the night. Australia was worse; they had to get up at three. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so and and we continued to work uh, work together. So I, I felt like I didn't get as much done as I would like to, but there was a there was a lot a lot happening, you know. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, but strange things. I live on the water on Bowen Island and I've, in my whole life, I've never seen a gray whale right outside the house. And, uh, just all these, uh, all the, uh, wildlife that was around was intense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and what did, did, did you get stressed out or upset? And does that sort of in, enter into your writing or not really? I, I had to keep calm. Uh, and and to think, this is so science fiction, you know, this whimper, <laughs> whimper yeah. of going into your house, not with a bang, but a whimper, you know, and uh, yeah. uh, you go into your house and we would go out in a speedboat. And for the first time, everybody was, that I've ever seen um, when during lockdown, everybody was on their docks at uh, at sunset every night. I'd never seen that. Uh, just everybody out there watching the sun go down. It was, it was very, yeah. it was quite Neville shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Watching the sun go down for the last day of the life. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it really was a while. Really, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. But that, that darkness, that feeling of science fiction, I was wondering if, if it gets into your writing and you don't realize it. It, uh, it hasn't yet got into my writing. I I spent so much time alone in in England. Well, I mean, my my husband was working, so I was on my own a lot and kind of used to that. And actually, there were more people here because uh, we were sheltering my mom next door and and so on. So it was uh, it was uh, not as bad for me as it could have been for as I know it was for a lot of people who who weren't able to uh, enjoy. Yeah. Uh, the writing time as much for sure yeah oh yeah well you know it's it's what happens so well it's been a pleasure it um, has been so, such a pleasure to meet you both and uh, talk about writing yeah so now the book we're talking about is called the extra and the uh guest we've had is the writer of that book and she's also a publisher look her up it'll all be on our site mel anastasia thank you for being here thank you so much alan dave
Bye-bye. Thanks, Mel. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the introduction of something weird media. I'll be back. <laughs>